This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Cardiology and Heart Surgery Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Gregory Mishko, Division Head of Cardiology and Co-Director of the Cardiovascular Institute and Vice President of Cardiology Operations at North Shore University Health System. Dr. Mishko, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. I appreciate the invitation. Before we dive into the questions, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Well, I am Australian by birth, Canadian by training, and have worked in the United States since 1992. Uh, worked for the vast bulk of my career as an interventional cardiologist, uh, primarily located in Springfield, Illinois, and began to transition from a primarily clinically focused career into administrative responsibilities around 2013, 2014, uh, when I became the medical director of uh, the Prairie Heart Institute in Springfield. And then uh, in 2015, I was uh, looking to sort of reinvent myself. Uh, after you do interventional cardiology for 30 years, um, you, you sometimes you reflect back and wonder what you're going to do for the next 10 years, and decided to uh, go back to school and get a uh, an MBA. And I did that uh, through a really innovative and terrific program. Shout out to uh, Kelly School of Business uh, in Indianapolis and got an MBA uh, with them in 2017. And uh, then also began to re-examine whether I wanted to continue my career in Springfield or take what I've learned and see whether I could uh, recreate or uh, do something original and uh, moved to Chicago in 2018 and worked for what's now a six hospital system called North Shore University Health on the north side of Chicago and into the uh, northern suburbs. That's fantastic. So, you know, I'm really interested in your decision then to go back and get your MBA. Um, you know, during that program, what did you learn that you felt like was most valuable for you as a physician? Was there anything that you thought, oh, I wish I knew this beforehand? Or, um, you know, was it really just kind of looking ahead and, and making sure that you're prepared for the next chapter of your career? Well, I think there's at least two or three things, um, generalities that I would say. One is it's a two-year program. It, it's been uh, condensed uh, somewhat uh, since I was there, but it was a two-year program. And I think the first thing that it allowed me to do was an opportunity to, to think, uh, to think about my past career, think about my future prospects. And so I, I use that time um, because it's really time that you set aside for yourself. Uh, I use that time to, to think about where I've been and where I wanted to go. So uh, anytime you, you have an opportunity to do that, uh, you should take advantage of the uh, the time to just think, uh, which you don't often get to do in a busy uh, clinical practice. The second thing uh, I would say that it afforded me was it uh, allowed you to learn the language of business, um, which I believed was required if I wanted to uh, commit more of my time to an administrative focus. Um, Yes, there were definitely things that I learned that I did not know, accounting, finance, uh, macroeconomics, microeconomics, and so on. But a lot of it, particularly at the, the Kelly School, was concentrated on the business of medicine and learning the language that uh, 
A, gave you content, but also I think gives you a certain degree of credibility in terms of uh, when you find that job that you want or when you're working in your job, that people see you and you're uh, as credible and that you're speaking the same language. And I, I think as I look at job postings, uh, that belief has been borne out in that I am beginning to see not only do uh, employers want physician leaders who have a strong clinical background, but they are, it, uh, it seems to me, asking that they have uh, another advanced degree of some description, i.e. in Masters of Health Administration or an MBA or, or something like that. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it's really helpful to think about. And um, I, I'm sure many of our listeners, you know, are in the similar spot that you were back in 2015, 2017, trying to figure out what's going to be next for them. Now, thinking about your current role at North Shore, what are the top three biggest issues that you're seeing in cardiology right now? Well, I, I would say that uh, there's no shortage of good ideas. Uh, I come across them all the time, either not always my own, but a, a, a lot of times other folks. And what has become increasingly difficult is the contracting margins that in the past would have financed those good ideas. But now, uh, you know, margins have become uh, razor thin and we are, you look for alternative sources of, of uh, money to, to finance many of the things that you believe would advance your uh, division or your practice or your organization. So for instance, uh, how do you finance a training program that has more trainees than, AC, uh, than uh, funding from CMS? How do you finance research uh, and have more, uh, uh, personnel than say the studies bring in. Uh, how do you innovate in terms of uh, programming that you want to offer? And, and I'm thinking about an issue that just came up tomorrow as we talk about our advanced heart failure team. Who pays for that pharmacist to join our team? Where do those funds come from? And I think that's become uh, an enormous problem in all aspects of medicine. Uh, how to source funding and, and potentially an increasing reliance on philanthropy, which is also just a limited pie as well. So I would say that's certainly uh, one issue that we've had to deal with. Um, a second issue in our own system is that when I joined here, uh, we were a four hospital system and now we're a six hospital system. And you see this across the country now, uh, the ongoing integration of hospitals and practices and systems. Uh, and now you have to deal with the logistics of not only how do you build a common culture, but how do you break down this Tower of Babel where uh, these systems uh, have different electronic medical records? How do you integrate uh, your imaging and uh, archives. Um, how do you incorporate remote patient monitoring and who, who, who's responsible for all that data that, 
that comes in now from all of these different sources. Um, and that occupies a very large amount of my time. And I suspect you're gonna see this increasingly across uh, the country, how to uh, create a common uh, sort, uh, form of communication between all the different practices. Got it, got it. Yeah, that's fascinating to think about, especially, you know, as you mentioned, there's so much consolidation within the healthcare space right now. And so, you know, when you, I just wanted to have one follow-up question in terms of building that common culture and building, you know, the, um, whether it's the technology integration or just other aspects of being able to have one really unified vision of, of patient care. What do you do when you bring on, you know, a, a new team of physicians and especially in the cardiology space to make sure everybody's on the same page and, and really um, define, you know, a, a culture in that way? Well, um, we use a process here that uh, I'm sure others use as well. We call it mutual discovery where a lot of time is spent uh, identifying leaders uh, in each focus area who get together and uh, have a facilitator and try and learn as much about each other as they can uh, to determine where there are uh, areas of sh uh, commonality that's shared. And uh, I think it's through this process of mutual discovery where you can build on that basis of shared interests um, rather than uh, one partner forcing themselves on another partner. So we don't uh, use a model of acquisition. We use a model of partnership. And we, we begin with this process called mutual discovery. Uh, I think once you have that uh, process in place, and it takes place across the entire um, system. So in, in my particular case, uh, as we took on these two extra hospitals, we worked with their cardiology and cardiovascular uh, surgery leadership to identify common areas, uh, areas of deficiency. But that same process went on uh, in pharmacy, went on in the labs, went on in oncology, and uh, so on. So uh, the second uh, goal of mutual discovery is to also then determine where's the greatest areas of opportunity, given uh, this share these shared interests or and resources, and build the bid business case uh, for determining how uh, resources are going to be allocated to this venture now based on the results of mutual discovery. Got it. Thank you so much for walking us through that, Dr. Mishkel. Now, how do you see heart care evolving in the next 18 months or so? <laughs> wow. You know, if I thought I could have predicted the future, I would have uh, never, I would never have predicted the last 12 months. <laughs> um, and after the last 12 months, 18 months sounds like a lifetime, doesn't it? Um, so I think probably what I would say is I, uh, what the one thing that the last 12 months or so has taught us is that when push comes to shove, uh, things can change very, very rapidly. And obviously the thing that changed the most rapidly was 
going from 100% face-to-face visits to at some point in time, zero. Um, and the very rapid adoption of telemedicine and um, remote monitoring, remote visits, and the infrastructure that's required to do that. So I don't think that that horse is gonna be put back into the barn. And although uh, I think all of us are happier having face-to-face visits and patients enjoy it, um, I think we're gonna continue to see uh, this um, uh, revolution, this telemedicine revolution continue and expand as I I alluded to earlier, uh, the use of remote patient monitoring uh, and how we can incorporate that, incorporate that into telemedicine visits and how we can incorporate and who owns the data and how do we incorporate uh, that into the electronic medical record. Um, I would say that the second thing I think that's gonna happen over the next 18 months, and I really don't take any pleasure in saying this, but I think we're going to see as a trend, uh, a continued contraction and cardiac surgery volumes um, for a number of reasons, uh, not least of which is that the ingenuity of uh, electrophysiologists and structural heart doctors and heart failure doctors and and entrepreneurs, we we just see every day now uh, procedures that used to be done by uh, cardiac surgeons in isolation now being done in an endovascular uh, format using a, a heart team approach. But, uh, and yes, we do identify more patients. So the number of patients who get treated, you know, the pie does get expanded, but only to a certain extent. And I, I think we start to see cardiac surgery volumes decreasing in the same way so we saw coronary bypass volumes decreasing. We're seeing valve surgery decrease. And that's gonna have pretty significant implications uh, for the future of cardiology and cardiovascular surgery, as well as the economic health of hospitals. And then the final thing I think that's going to happen uh, quickly over the next 18 months is this continued emphasis on outpatient procedures um, and uh, an avoidance of hospitalizations. And I think organizations are going to have to pivot quickly and look at how they deliver the majority of their care, because at least on the cardiology side, uh, it's conceivable that virtually every encounter that we have with a patient could be done in some kind of outpatient format. Uh, even, Even when you look at the medical care of patients, does every patient with heart failure require a three day admission to the hospital? Are there other ways to A, prevent them from coming to the hospital, but are there ways of keeping them out of the hospital, which is an entirely different paradigm uh, than care in the past, which was we were always looking for ways to bring patients into the hospital. Now we're in a position where we have to, we're gonna be forced to progressively keep patients out of the hospital and accept the lower reimbursement that comes with them. Got it. That makes sense. And, you know, really kind of outlines, as you mentioned, a a trend, not only in how care is delivered, but also, you know, how uh, some of the value-based care trends and, um, you know, cost challenges that are arising. I'm wondering, what are you excited about today and and what makes you nervous? 
Well, I think there's a long list of things that get you excited when you read about them. Sometimes they're uh, solutions looking for problems right now, but certainly uh, understanding uh, the expanding role of artificial intelligence, the use of personalized genomics and translating what you learn about a patient's genome to their own personalized care plan. Uh, you think about all of the uh, possibilities that could be associated with 3D printing and robotics. Um, and you read about those things, you know, every day in the journals that uh, people get sent in the mail or by email. Uh, the things that make me nervous are really more people related, uh, not technology related. Uh, one is the fact that we see a shrinking cardiovascular surgery volume, and it does make me nervous because uh, the folks who are coming out of training have done less and less procedures, um, potentially are not as adept as the senior partners who do cardiovascular surgery once were when they came out of training. And there's less surgery for them to do, and there are less job opportunities. And uh, it really does concern me uh, that uh, our ability to provide cardiovascular surgery could be uh, seriously degraded over, the, over time. Uh, as an analog to that, I also think about my own division of some 60 to 70 uh, cardiologists, and I look at the average age of those cardiologists, and we have a very, you know, our average age of our division is in the 50s, and we have a very substantial population of cardiologists well into their 60s. Uh, in fact, the oldest member of my division who's still practicing is 90, um, and that's laudable. But what you realize is that there are going to be a significant number of retirements over the next uh, several years. How do we replace those cardiologists? Uh, do we have sufficient fellowship pool? Do we have a sufficient number of people being uh, trained to handle the increasing demands of cardiology? And I am uh, fearful that we may not have as robust a supply of cardiologists as we uh, potentially will need uh, in the near future. And then I think I would end by commenting on the, some people think it's a necessary trend, but the corporatization of medicine, whether it's systems buying doctors or large businesses getting into the healthcare space, but I think as a, as a provider myself and as talking to my colleagues, there is a disengagement from the business of medicine. And a lot of the joy in practicing can be taken out of medicine when one is viewed as just a cog in the wheel in the system of care delivery. Absolutely. I think that makes a ton of sense. And, and thank you so much for going through those with us. Now, before we wrap up our conversation, I was wondering, can you share three pieces of advice for emerging physician leaders today? Well, I think this is an important topic uh, for all the reasons that I've stated above. I think physician leadership is crucial uh, to the success of any healthcare organization. And within my own organization, we, we use a dyad, a dyad model of leadership where 
I'm paired with a VP of operations and our offices are side by side and we have a informal and formal pact that no meeting or email is, uh, you know, every meeting and email is shared between each other so that we build trust between the administration and the physicians. And I think that you see uh, that the most uh, successful hospital systems incorporate physician leadership all the way up to the C-suite. So um, to those people who are interested in leadership, I, I would say that the first place to start uh, as you embark on your career is to get involved in, with hospital or system committee work uh, to understand the processes uh, that are involved in healthcare delivery and to develop and demonstrate your leadership ability at that level. Um, and I think when you get involved in those sorts of situations, whether it's within the hospital or professional societies, you will have the opportunity of seeking out mentorship who can uh, oftentimes point you in the right uh, direction. Uh, secondly, is a, uh, a personal insight. And I think it's all too easy for people who have leadership ambitions to uh, present problems rather than propose solutions. And that's not what leadership is about. Leadership is not only identifying problems, but proactively undertaking or attempting to fix those problems. And I think for people who are embarking on a leadership journey, getting, uh, getting a reputation as a doer and more than a complainer is a healthy uh, skill to develop. And then the final thing I would say is that you really have to be deliberate about uh, the additional time and training that it will take to become a recognized leader. And that there is a trade-off between clinical income generation and the time and energy that it's going to take to participate in leadership training or actually administration. So I would tell people to look towards their system. Many large systems have leadership tracks that offer additional training of relevance. There are national organizations, for instance, the American Association of Physician Leaders and, and more and more now, there are uh, university-related uh, programs, either a master's in health administration or MBAs that reach out specifically to physician leaders and develop curriculum uh, that are relevant to those individuals. And, and I think ultimately that, time of, that type of time commitment, as, as was the case for myself, is important. Dr. Mishkel, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fantastic discussion, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. I appreciate it.